Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Christ the King, today may we celebrate your peaceful reign, and may we know that we are safe. We are safe to flourish and to live and to explore and to question and to doubt and to wonder and to grow. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope that you all had a wonderful holiday week. Uh, in our home, we did have a great holiday week. However, the day before Thanksgiving, our oven broke with a turkey in the oven. So that was really fun. It's the saddest, one of the saddest things I've done is taking a turkey and just mournfully dumping it into the trash because it was no longer food safe. <laughs> Sad story. But it was okay. It was okay. We all, we all survived. Well, today is the final Sunday of our liturgical year. Christ the King Sunday. Before we begin the church year anew next week with the first Sunday of Advent, we pause today to celebrate Christ's peaceful reign. Now, this is the fifth year in a row that I've taken on Christ the King Sunday. (laughs) And I can tell you that this metaphor, this symbol, Christ the King, well, it's tricky Taking the pulse of our community, I would say that most of us feel, at best, kind of ambivalent about this phrase, Christ the King, especially since 2016, with our growing awareness of Christian nationalism, and as many of us have distanced ourselves further and further from evangelicalism, Christ the King kind of has all the wrong resonances in this climate, right? This morning, though, I want to use this metaphor to explore a way forward, a way for us to deepen our Christian faith and trust. So many of us here at Pearl are searching for new ways to be Christian, for ways to reimagine and to hold Christian ideas and practices in a new light with new trust. What I want to trace today are three different Stances. I want, I'll take a side here on stances. Uh, stances are like metaphors. They're physical ways we hold ourselves. They kind of tell a story, right? You can tell when someone's holding a stance. Have you, have you read the, uh, the articles about like power stances before meetings and you can, you know, Superman stance and stuff like that? Unfortunately, the research was totally debunked and it apparently doesn't work, but it still feels like, you know? <laughs> Stances tell us kind of something about who we are, you know, if you're really cool or if you're kind of nerdy or what, you know, like your physical posture tells you a a story. But also the stances that we hold toward ideas, toward people, is kind of a way that we hold in our bodies our approach to things. Many of us started out in our Christian faith in a stance of immersion, a stance of immersion, like the air we breathe. 
like a fish swimming in water. Christianity just was the world we lived in. That we were handed this, this way that was an absolute reality. It was our whole vision, and it was untroubled, right? It was unproblematic for us. In this stance, the stance of immersion, our main activity of believing, of faith, is acceptance, right? We're taught something by leaders, by parents, by teachers, and we just accept it as true because the whole, we trust the whole thing, our church, our scripture, our leaders, our God. So if I say then, Christ the King, then our response is a hearty, amen, our God reigns. Christ the King is good news because it tells us God is in control, working everything to good. We can see this stance of immersion in Psalm 96. Oh, the TVs are having a fun morning. Uh, you can just turn that one off uh, during the sermon and I'll fix it afterwards. Say among the nations, the Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. Now, I imagine that many of us in this room can remember what it felt like to read a psalm like that and just feel totally untroubled. Yes, our God reigns. But I also imagine that many of us now hear Christ the King and feel somewhere along a spectrum of discomfort, right? From slight unease to significant ick. If that's you, you're not alone. Many of us at Pearl have moved away from this stance of immersion to a second stance, which we could call distancing, a stance of distancing, right? You see this, this stepping back motion here, distancing, here, we've become a little more critical, a little more suspicious. Our perception of Christ the King is not, yes, God reigns, good, but instead, that metaphor makes us think about violence, about patriarchy, about the long history of colonialism and empire that Christendom has perpetuated on earth. It's troubling. So Christ the King might not make us not think of the celebration of Psalm 96, but the threat of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision, that he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Kiss his feet or he will be angry and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Amen and amen. That's fun, right? I mean, king is so violent, right? Kingship. So Christ the king must be violent as well. We usually enter a stance of distancing through some kind of cognitive dissonance. Things stop working. Uh, maybe it's harm that was caused to us or that someone we love by our theology or by a leader in a church or by a community. Or maybe we learn about the historical realities of Christendom and its role in colonialism, in slavery, in racism, in misogyny, and so forth. We can no longer be directly immersed in our faith because we find ourselves having to ask, can I trust this? And the activity of faith in this stance, I want to say this clearly, this is an activity of faith, right? This stance is not a non-faith. 
There's an activity of faith going on here, and it's deconstruction. It's kind of pulling things apart. It looks like taking Jesus seriously enough to be willing to pull down even our own ideas, our own tradition, if we find that they aren't actually good. Now, I want to pause here a moment. These first two stances of faith, immersion and distancing, are, I think, familiar to many of us. But we can't live forever in distancing. Uh, It's mainly negative, right? It's mainly about what we're not more than what we are. But what does a way forward look like? What does it look like to positively engage faith after a distancing? That isn't always easy to say. I mean, take a metaphor like Christ the King. Maybe once it was beautiful and full of hope, but has become tangled up in violence and patriarchy and colonialism. And now what are we supposed to do with it? Well, maybe a way forward is a stance of embrace. Now, I've really struggled with this word here. Words matter here because they help us get a metaphor, get a picture for ourselves about kind of how we're relating to this whole thing of Christianity. And I use this word embrace carefully. Uh, It's different than immersion. Immersion, it's just, you know, Christianity is your whole reality. It's everything. You're kind of lost in it. Uh, You don't really think apart from it. But to embrace someone, you actually have to be a separate self, right? You need to be a person with a little bit of distance, and then you can bring them close. If immersion is being totally absorbed and f- where faith is accepting, and if distancing is a stance of suspicion, this, this buffering, then embrace is a stance of being thoughtful, separate, but also welcoming. Having stepped back to peel away the detritus of the years and asking critical questions of our faith, we find ourselves open to the radically good way of Jesus. And the activity of faith here isn't just accepting, nor is it just deconstructing, but it's discerning. Discerning. Looking for what's good, pursuing what leads to flourishing, and setting aside what doesn't. I think we see this stance in the life of Jesus. I mean, he was continuously drilling down to what mattered and setting aside venerable religious traditions and ideas that really no longer served goodness, whether it was Sabbath restrictions or dietary laws or exclusion of the unclean or the impure. Jesus didn't simply absorb the religion of his day, nor did he just kick against it. He found this way to discern, to embrace what was good wholeheartedly and to release what was not. I think this gets us to the heart of what Christ the King is really about. In our reading from the Hebrew Scriptures today, the prophet Ezekiel was doing some deconstruction. Uh, The religious leaders in Ezekiel's day were predatory. They were abusive. They served the rich and they marginalized the poor. And so Ezekiel used this metaphor of shepherds. These leaders were bad shepherds and they devoured the sheep. Without a good shepherd, the sheep would be scattered. And so in contrast, Ezekiel says, God is like a good shepherd. I will feed them with good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. They shall lie down in good grazing land. They shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. 
I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. Centuries later, Jesus picks up on this image, and he calls himself the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is the heart of Christ the King. See, the emphasis of this metaphor, Christ the King, is not on king, as if we already knew what kings were, and Christ is just one of those. From a stance of immersion, we might think that, right? Oh, Christ is king. Oh, God is in charge. Great. And from a stance of distancing, we might say, oh, king means violence, so Christ is one of well, That's not good. But rather, the emphasis of Christ the king is on Christ. Christ showing us what it really looks like to hold power and authority, redefining king entirely. It turns out we don't know what king means until we look at Christ. Think of the context where Christ the king was first set. I mean, in Jesus' day, there certainly was a king, and that king was Caesar. And the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, go to great lengths to set up this contrast between Christ and Caesar. So to say Jesus is king is to say, sorry, to say Jesus is king is to say Caesar is not king. Or maybe better, Caesar is not kingly because Christ is kingly. Christ is a servant. Christ is self-giving. Christ is with the poor and the marginalized. Christ is the good shepherd. And if Christ defines king rather than the other way around, then what this metaphor is really about is helping us discern how power and authority should be used in the world. Helping us distinguish between systems and leaders that are abusive and harmful on the one hand, and those that are self-giving and servant-hearted on the other. And those good Christ-like ways of leadership and authority, well, those we can embrace. Those we can embrace. See, this is, what I, this is what I mean by a stance of embrace. Rather than immersion where our religious tradition can just do no wrong, or a stance of distancing where we're suspicious of and distant from all of our religious tradition where it can do nothing really right, a stance of embrace invites us to discern what is good and hold to that. Now, I want to circle back over this terrain, over these three different lived stances from a different angle, because, of course, Our lived experience of these three stances isn't mostly intellectual. Uh, We don't sit around, most of us, um, I mean, I do, but but this is my job. We don't mostly sit around thinking about, like, Christ the King, what does that mean, right? Uh, Mostly, we don't think through these stances, but we feel them. We live them. And one of the places we feel these stances is in our experience of trust, of trust. Can we trust the divine? Can we trust God? These three stances I've described are not coincidentally mirrors of how we develop through our relationships into adulthood, right? As children under healthy and good conditions, we begin with this really deep, beautiful trust in our parents, in our culture, in our home. We're just immersed in our world, and it's just given to us, and that's really beautiful for children, But it also means they're kind of unable to see a lot of the danger and the complexity of life, right? With little kids, we think our parents are perfect. My dad can beat up your dad, and so on, right? They're our heroes. 
And then we hit adolescence. Adolescence. If you're a parent of adolescence, oh boy. <laughs> Here we are famously distrusting, right? Questioning, rebelling against authority. And a lot of this is the really important but awkward work of individuating, right? We're becoming selves, and so there is a stepping back. We have to see for ourselves. But it's a big shock to us to discover that our parents are not totally right. And they're not totally good. There's this kind of perfectionism that dies a hard death during adolescence. Because no one can live up to our ideals. Not even ourselves. It can be really hard to get back to trust after the shocks of adolescence. And I think actually a lot of us spend the rest of our lives trying to navigate our way back into being able to trust again after our adolescent years. But hopefully, gradually we find ourselves in adulthood with a trust that is much more complex. Our trust now involves recognizing and holding our vulnerability, tolerating our limitations and the limitations of those around us, extending forgiveness. Trust in adulthood is this gentle balance between believing the best of others, but also holding failure and limitations with grace. Here, trust is openness. It's availability. It is, it's now an embrace, because you are now a separate person who can welcome others. I think these three stances of faith, immersion, distancing, and embrace, could be described also as the unfolding levels of trust in the divine. And for a community of people who are, I think a lot of us are kind of somewhere in this distancing stance, we're, we're grappling with the aftershocks of deconstruction. One question I think we're collectively holding is what does it look like to move into trust in the divine, that complex trust of adulthood. Again, I'm not really talking about intellectual belief as much as I'm talking about the experience of trust. Like that inner rested calm, the capability to be at ease, to expect good. How can that come to be our feeling tone around the divine? I think that can be quite a struggle after that work of deconstruction has left us feeling that we're not really sure what to feel about God anymore. Well, I'm not going to say I totally have the answer here. Uh, this is, for me, an ongoing task as well. I think experientially, trust is really slow to build back once it's been shaken. And for many of us, the reasons that we moved into a distancing stance with religion was that our faith, our trust was broken. Something hurt us, and we stepped back. It can be hard to step back in again. But as I've been sitting with this sermon this week, I've kept thinking about Christ the King and Jesus the Good Shepherd, and my mind has kept turning back towards Psalm 23. If kingship is Christ, and Christ is Good Shepherd, then maybe there's something here for us to settle into. I know the opening of this psalm, it's familiar to most of us, can be a little saccharine, maybe a little bit too easy. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. It's beautiful. Can I trust it? 
But then listen to the complexity of the rest of the psalm. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, God being shepherd, Christ being king, it doesn't mean there's no dark valleys, valleys of the shadow of death, just that we're not alone in them. And we're seen tenderly and with great care in the midst of our darkness, of our doubt, and our unknowing. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I mean, here... The good shepherd is not the one who obliterates my enemies and gives me victory over them. Rather, this is the one who sets a table right in the midst of my enemies, which maybe is the opening up of a possibility of reconciliation, this table between me and my enemy. And, and maybe there'll be healing and the possibility that my couple overflow so much that I might actually be able to offer something to the one who was my enemy. I mean, if that were to happen, well, then surely goodness and mercy would be following me all the days of my life, and I would be dwelling in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the kind of movement I mean by embrace. Embrace. We might be comfortable with, we might be uncomfortable with Christ the King, but if I sit with Christ, the good shepherd, if I see this good shepherd as the one who knows how to set a table that would make peace between my enemies and, and me and could cause mercy and goodness to be the tone of life where once there was only darkness and discord, well, that's good. That's beautiful. That I can open up to. I can be vulnerable toward. If that's what the, is what the divine is like, then... I can open up to trust a little bit more. So I want to close this morning by simply reading those words again from that psalm. I want to invite you just to sit with them, to let them speak to your soul, and to invite you a little more into trust, to believe that this might be what the world is really like. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.